0: I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Minnie Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Stephen Aronson about his new book, The Search for Meaning and the Mystery of Consciousness, A Psychologist's Journey Through Gurdjieff and Young published by Karnak Press in 2022. This book explores the existential questions of reality, one's purpose for existing, attention, consciousness, and the nature of the universe, all from a scientific and psychological perspective grounded in over 40 years of practice in the Gurdjieff work. Stephen Aronson is a psychotherapist with an eclectic training background ranging from cognitive behavior therapy to the alchemical approach of Carl Jung. His spiritual life has been a search for verification of a deeper reality underlying the ordinary world of our senses. His personal aim has been to find a reconciliation between science and spirituality, which would allow reconciling the concepts of universal intelligence with rationality. The arcane language of specialized methods, although necessary for advanced training, is often a barrier for those seeking an initial understanding. After dozens of years in Jungian analysis and four decades of study and practice in the system of transformational psychology introduced to the West by G.I. Gurdjieff, he has sought to find an approach to illustrate these deep and complex ideas and methods in common language and universally shared experiences. Steve lives in rural Maine, where he retired in 2013 from 43 years in the private practice of psychotherapy, education, and training. He has published on the work of G.I. Gurdjieff in proceedings of the annual All and in Everything International Humanities Conference, as well as in Parabola, a magazine dedicated to myth, tradition, and the search for meaning. Steven Aronson, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Rob.
1: It's our pleasure to have you back. And of course, the occasion for this discussion, focus of this discussion will be your new book, The Search for Meaning and the Mystery of Consciousness, A Psychologist's Journey Through Gurdjieff and Jung. So um, the, the way I'd like to get started is, why did you write this book?
2: Well, in a way, actually, the book wrote itself Probably that before it, <clears throat> i um <clears throat> i'm seventy nine years old well, we'll be in april and um I've just always had a sense that I had a responsibility to give something back, and what i what I had to give back is is myself in terms of what I've come to understand through my own typology, my own unique experiences and perspective. And for me as a, a person who has been a psychotherapist for close to 50 years and heavily influenced uh, by the work of Jung and primarily Kierkegaard, that's the perspective which I bring to the world, to my work, into to myself. So that's the voice I will speak through. But yeah. My sense is that each of us is our own individual facet on the cosmic holographic crystal. And um, if we're going to make a, uh, a sincere uh, contribution, it has to be by sharing what we see through our window, our particular angle. And uh, I mean, if there are a thousand names for God, there are millions of human experiences, each one of which is a little part of that. as a, as a fragment, as a splitter of that larger whole. So <clears throat> I wanted to share what I'd come to. And with this particular endeavor, uh, for a long time, I've been wondering how uh, I could reconstruct the work from my own experiences, the Gurdjieff work. In particular. And uh, this is a suggestion I've heard off and on over many years that to see the degree to which one has really digested and come to understand in a practical way, uh, you have to go through your own experiences. And so I wanted to try and also, th- this question of well, what about the future is one that is uh, very powerful in the Gurdjieff work these days. We're now in the third, beginning the perhaps the fourth generation since Gurdjieff. And uh, the question repeatedly comes up, do the old forms still hold? Uh, are we supposed to continue to recreate and parrot uh, from our understanding uh, the kind of models that Gurdjieff used to transmit this material? It's the, it's the great difficult I think all traditions have between um, we don't want to distort the teaching by getting avant-garde and uh, giving in to the whims of the moment and uh, changing the traditions around because then it becomes diluted. But at the same time, as Gurdjieff pointed out, a particular teaching is brought at a particular time to a particular audience using their They are metaphors that are going to resonate with what they need for that time. But the perennial wisdom is the same throughout time, but the out-of-form changes. So has our culture, at least the North American culture or the uh, Western European American culture, has it changed to such an extent that the way Gertrude brought the work initially doesn't resonate as much today? And are there people capable of bringing it the way Gurdjieff did? He brought his own unique style. Uh, do we want uh, people just parroting you know, the teacher, or do we want people who have found a way to really incorporate the teaching <clears throat> and be able to speak in their own authentic voice?
0: Yeah, let, uh, so, I, yeah. I, I want to uh, just uh, pause on that uh, point and make a couple comments. Uh, one, One is that in reference to the book, I think that it, it, what what you say rings true. In that the the for someone who's familiar with ideas of the Gurdjieff work, um, in particular, that the themes will be very clear. You know, themes about the nature of attention, the nature of our situation as psychological uh, beings and bodies uh, definitely resonates. And yet, there's very, very little jargon of a, of a, of the garge of teaching in the book, and I don't mean jargon in a negative way. Just a, there's, not, there isn't the specific language which might have a certain kind of uh, sound. And so, I think that your objective of trying to express in your own words uh, your experience, understanding of this work that you've been involved in for over 40 years is is it comes through very nicely and it does it does this question you're raising right now about the the future of the gurdjieff work or the future of any spiritual teaching uh whatsoever uh is a really interesting one given given the current situation we find ourselves in, both with technology and social structures and political situations and environmental pressures and uh, population pressures and all of these things that didn't exist in the same way as they existed when Gurdjieff was bringing his ideas to the West. And I don't have an answer for this, and we may get into this later in the conversation, but I think just teeing up this question of what does a an effective st- spiritual tradition have to look like in the modern era to be responsive to how people are listening today? I think is a very fascinating question. So I just want to you know first acknowledge that I you know I appreciate that in the book it is a in a way a a, a book of the work and yet it doesn't sound like a book of the work and that's a, I think a uh, an important uh, thing to note here. Oh. Good, then I've succeeded in
2: that. That was my intention. Uh, So just to finish what I was saying before, and then come back to this, a teaching has to evolve with the time. It seems to me that if the essence of the teaching is, is incorporated into the being of a person, then how they express themselves will carry that essence. That's the hope. By their fruits, you shall know them. So I intentionally wanted to write this in common language. But the challenge there, as Gurdjieff and many of us have pointed out, is that language is relative. Any given word can have dozens of meanings. So how how to use ordinary language without it being interpreted subjectively by the reader? Towards that end, I've been uh, going back uh, to Jung and the importance of myth and story. I've tried to uh, saturate this with uh, stories from my life as a therapist, as a, as a private individual, but to try and uh, write it conversationally as if the reader and I were sitting down over a cup of coffee and just chatting. And to write it in such a way that I hope that the ordinary experiences—well, some not ordinary—but uh, but the 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 examples I'm giving will resonate with the reader. who Will say, "Oh, I've had something similar to that happen to me." So my hope is that, in a way, it's a workbook, though it's not written that way. But there are many places where uh, I suggest the reader pause and try. Uh, to bring their attention inside themselves in a particular way that might uh, for them resonate in such a way that they will experience in that moment what I'm trying to point to, the phenomenon I'm trying to point to in the book. I don't want it, well, as the work is is three-centered, of course, there's a lot of intellectual material in here, but I'm hoping that it is not an intellectual book, but that it is an experiential book. So that if someone is drawn to uh, mystery and is drawn to exploring mystery in the way that I have been, uh, this may provide
0: uh, a useful model for them to experiment with to make their own journey, not mine, their own. So one one um, thing that arose to me as I was kind of reflecting on the book is that in that conversational tone that you take in many of the essays. Um, I almost felt like you were talking to your younger self. And, well, <laughs> yeah. and so I just, you know, it's a, in, a, in a way it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of, and I, I, and I understand that because, uh, but, it, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not exactly like you're trying to make sense of your life as much as there's this uh, hopeful message to the younger self that uh, the mysteries <laughs> that one is facing and doesn't understand, you know, actually is the direction to move. Maybe you could talk about you know, a little bit of the sense of like, who you think your intended audience was. And, and uh, in a way, what were, you, were you in a sense speaking to that younger self who had to sort of stumble and find direction? I think I had
2: three audiences that I'm aware of. And the first was myself. Uh, I wanted to,
1: yeah.
2: as I tried to find a way to reformulate Gertriff's work through my own experiences... Primarily, it was a way for me to make sense of my own life at, at this late point, so, uh, particularly the, uh, the thread of mysteries, which I, I call the trail of breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. All the, uh, these events in my life that when they occur, they, they got stored in separate compartments. And um, the writing would bring up in association. Various things. And often, as I was writing, I didn't know why they were appearing then or where they were going to go. And sometimes my inner critic, as I was typing, would argue with them and say, oh, you don't really want to say that. You don't want to include this to you. But my practice was to not pay no attention to that and just keep writing and see what came out at the end. Uh, and the, so it was a way of exploring myself uh, and what I've come to. Secondly, I wanted to uh, write a book for my colleagues, uh, not only in the Gurdjieff work, but in any related spiritual meditative tradition, because I think they all have the same core. Uh, One of the things I have discovered in many, not all, but many of the groups, Gurdjieff groups I've been involved with, is that uh, as the years go by, Somehow it stays too intellectual or too foggy. Uh, for, I've seen people in despair. You know, why don't I get it? Why don't I? And, and for me, it's not like that at all, that it's right in front of us. It is so imminent. Mean, it's closer than the vein in your neck. We don't see it. because We're looking through or We're looking in the wrong way. And I'm hoping that providing the kinds of examples I did in this book, I can – help people see how they've already had these kinds of experiences. They're already further on the path than they realize. And that uh, in a way, it's much simpler than, <laughs> than all the theories and the diagrams make it. So I, uh, that was my other audience. And then to, thirdly, um, oh, and also to maybe provide some kind of model for uh, an, an additional way in which the work can be approached today. And, and one can talk to people about it instead of handing them in search of the miraculous would be Elizabeth's tales to his grandson, which um, worked for some people, but probably not a lot of others. And I also wanted them to just uh, write something for um, the educated public who might be interested in these questions of meaning, mystery and consciousness and give them a taste of a way that it could be approached and to leave something of myself behind so that when I die, I can hopefully have sense that I've paid the debt of my existence.
1: Thank you. So um, so one, one, of the, one of the features of the book um, that feels different than the writings that you just re- referenced uh, in Search of the Miraculous and um, uh, Beelzebub, et cetera, is that in your book, you are constantly asking questions. It is a it, it is a um, uh, a notable um, um, presence in the book. I'm guessing that there are an awful lot of uh, question marks. If we did it, if we did, if we uh, ran a, a computer search to find out how many question question marks there are, I think it would be a fairly high percentage. Um, and, and I suspect that that is precisely the sort of, I mean, I, it seems to me that, that that is one of the features of the way that you attempt to bring people into the uh, work that you um, would like to offer people and um and I'm wondering, because you said earlier that that the book wrote itself i'm wondering if this is something that you were consciously aware of or because of your background in, in psychology your um, your uh, um, your general disposition if this was um, a, a, a deliberate feature of the book both okay
2: was it Elabor- elaborate 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 if you will well I, I, I was reflecting on this this past week. You think of the mystery of what we call question mm-hmm. what is a question? Why would I have a question? I have a question when the structure of my whatever I currently believe or assume uh, or how I'm working uh, fractures there's a break and I realized there's, there's something else going on there's more to this so a question arises I've missed something there's more in a way a question is like an opening or a wormhole that suddenly connects the past with the future through the present, and if I will step into that unknown realm and allow myself to float or swim with it, without demanding some sort of uh, concrete intellectual answer that I can hold on to, so I don't get seasick, if I would just float with it, uh, the the current of the question takes me somewhere, and I wind up someplace else. And, ah, now I have a different understanding. Now I'm on new solid ground, more solid ground, until the next question. So if I'm going to, unless I'm <laughs> I think I know everything, if I'm interested in the question of meaning and mystery, then uh, I need I, I thrive on questions because questions are are invitations to go to somewhere I haven't been before. And whenever I take my mind there, or my being there, or my experience there, I've expanded into this new territory. So questions help me grow. I was very deliberate to not try and provide answers. One because <clears throat> I want people. What I what I would hope for people is that they would become not only interested in questions, but excited by questions and give up the search for answers and just follow the questions. Follow the questions will bring answers, but never be satisfied with that answer because unless you're the creator of the universe and you know everything, there's always more to know. And if we look at uh, Gurdjieff's uh, cosmology, he suggests the creator of the universe doesn't know everything, which is why he created the universe. so so the
1: so the Creator has questions
2: yeah. too <laughs> um, maybe the, say so if, maybe if the, the creator. yeah if he didn't if the Creator didn't have questions what's what's the point of creating creatures who would ask questions
0: every the universe is a question
2: and the biggest question of all is myself what am I what are you what are we you know, how how does consciousness uh appear in a universe of matter
0: hmm. as a that's funny that uh you asked the question that way i'll digress briefly with a uh, uh, a story from my childhood which is possibly my first spiritual experience and i i still remember it vividly because i was playing in the street i think a friend of mine's uh, uh Uh, His little brother was on a bicycle and there was a rope tied to the bicycle or something. He was riding circles around me. And I remember my mind, I'd been studying astronomy at the time. I was probably in third grade and I was, I could understand the earth. I could understand the moon. I could understand the the planets and the stars. And I was kind of going through this hierarchy in my mind of the galaxies. And that all made sense to me. And then this question arose, uh, what is I? And the shock is still palpable to me today. Just rang through my entire life that uh, that that question stopped me because I couldn't I couldn't grasp it in the way that I could grasp my formatory knowledge about the uh, uh, astronomical model. It was like (laughs) I and and then you know after that shock you know I'm back on the street playing again. But that that moment is like a singular punctuation. In my own life, and I suspect that as as you're describing, uh, you have similar punctuations of your own around that very question. Absolutely, that, <clears throat> to me, that is the question
2: uh, immensely more important than um, uh, where are the galactic superclusters going, or um, what's going on in the quantum world. All, all of this is about the material body of the universe and the invisible laws that shape it. Fascinating. And since it's the world we live in and the world that is inside of us, uh, critical to understand that. But the key is, what is I? Because this exploration out into space and the exploration down into the quantum realm, where is this exploration occurring? It's occurring in my mind. Well, what is that? Who is making the exploration? Who is constructing these telescopes and electronic microscopes and and um, cyclotrons in order to study these phenomena? Where are these designs appearing they 're appearing in my mind without mind um, there 'd be nothing to know that the material universe existed. <laughs> So for me, we cannot have a unified theory of everything without including consciousness. And not just ours, but it seems to me that uh, every living entity, what we define as life, has some degree of consciousness. Because even the most primitive life forms have a degree of sensitivity They have some degree of awareness of the surroundings and how to interact with it. Well, what is that? Maybe rocks have sensitivity. Um, I don't know. (laughs) But certainly anything we call alive does. And it seems to me that is the the beginning of what culminates in what we call consciousness in three-brained humans. And we see within humans enormous vertical range of qualities of consciousness, not only between individuals uh, who function at different levels generally in their lives, but also within each one of ourselves if we learn to study the interior uh, the way it's possible, certainly through a Gurdjieff system, I think other meditative practices um, through depth psychotherapy, uh, like Jung, we discover that we also have this enormous vertical range of qualities of sensitivity and consciousness and awareness in ourselves. What's going on here? How, how is this possible? And whatever we are ultimately at this point in my inner work, it seems to me, and, uh, is hope will go deeper, but at the moment it seems to me that we are uh, a non-material awareness inside a physical body. How did it get there? What's it doing there? Where did it come from? Is it an inherent part of the universe? Well, that means the universe is conscious. Did it come from outside the universe and penetrate into the universe? Well, that's interesting. So we're outside the universe either way uh, it's just a delightful mystery and and um, this changes one's perspective on everything
1: so uh, your your vertical range of of uh, sensitivity um, and consciousness that you've that you were just discussing um, it seems to me is the injection of the importance of hierarchy that Gurdjieff speaks of in very different in a different in a very different way, and you just demonstrated one of the features of your book. It seems to me, which is precisely not to delineate all the different levels um, and complexities of hierarchies and implications of hierarchies. But you, you just demonstrated that it's asking questions about those things. That is your approach. But, but the question that arises for me is, has that always been the case? Is that a, 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 uh, if you use the word you just uh, um, invoked, is that an inherent property of, of the being Stephen Aronson that we uh, um, come to know through this, reading this book.
2: Asking questions.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm asking you if that is a, if that is a um, propensity that you have developed through your spiritual practice or your, your contact with the Gurdjieff work, and your um, engagement with Jung is that? Did that pre-exist, or was that a product of your engagement?
2: No, I, I think it came with the original programming, its conception. Okay, and and then unfolded. You no, know, I think that was. A, a, I don't know. Maybe everyone's born with it, and you know, if you go to school, they teach you not to ask questions. Maybe, but uh, no, I've always had questions. Got uh, as as I've gotten older they've gotten deeper more complex, more sophisticated but uh, they've always been there so when
1: you when you um engaged with the Gurdjieff work that was a that was something you brought to your engagement and I'm wondering if you if if that was welcome or is that something that you have um elaborated um differently than than you've seen other people engage with the work. I mean you, you spoke to this a moment ago uh, for the people who despair that they're ever going to get anywhere, but for the people who don't who perhaps have had a sense that they have gotten somewhere along the way, um, um, how was your how was your propensity for asking questions received? By whom? By those people that you uh, understood not to be in despair about their engagement
2: with the work. Uh, they turned it back on me. Oh. In, in the sense that um, the couple of people have really been my, my great teachers, in particular Keith Buzzel mm-hmm. and Shamo Malin. Not that I haven't learned a lot from other people along the way too. Sure. But those two people, particularly Keith um, Buzzel, were always in question. So I'd ask a question and the discussion would open up into other questions and other questions and other questions. And I had to learn to uh, suspend my impatience for answers until I gradually began to see that the real answers are not so much somebody telling me, Yes, one and one makes two. Uh, Those weren't the questions I was asking. Uh, I would say, what what is the meaning of this? Uh, The response would uh, be to take me on an exploration of what I currently understood it to mean. And then the other party would share their understanding. And then maybe another person would share their understanding. And out of that combination over time, um, something else grew. But I, I think, too, if someone's got this kind of very deep question, the kind of question that does not lend itself to a specific yes or no, this is it answer. I mean, that's the realm of science. Either it's hot or it's cold. It's um, white or black or it's this frequency, that frequency. But I, it's not like that in the inner world, from my perspective. Because Everything is there simultaneously. And... The beauty of the Gurdjieff uh, approach, at least in terms of the groups, for the most part, not all of them, but that I've been involved with, is that the the sharing of experiences, the sharing of questions, the sharings of uh, how people have tried to explore them, what they've come to so far, uh, and then to keep coming back and again and again. It's an ongoing dialogue. It's not, what does this mean? It means that. Well, then there's no place else to go. It means that. But how do we... All right. So if, uh, for instance, in the Gurdjieff work, if, if someone says, well, well, what does Gurdjieff mean by these different levels of hydrogens?" And the answer is, well, he means different frequencies of vibrations or different tastes or different qualities of experience or density. Okay, well, that's a technical answer. What does that do for me personally? I need to be able to taste different qualities of energy in myself, different vibratory levels, different qualities of sensitivity or awareness. Now I can see myself on those diagrams. I can say, ah, that's what it's about. It's a hierarchy of different qualities of experience. Ah, okay. Now let me work with that. But it has to come through my experience. It was just it's just a formatory factoid in my head that I can impress people with. But it doesn't mean I understand anything.
1: So um, I heard you. I, I understand. I think I understand that I heard you say um, in response to my question that while you started off with the propensity for asking questions and you engaged with a teacher who was resonant with that uh, approach? What I heard, what I think I heard you say is that, um, you learned from your engagement with Mr. Buzzel and others and, and colleagues as well in the Gurdjieff work that it's not about finding an answer, which might have been Implied in your, in, in what you said, that that was your previous, um, inclination. But you, what you learned was how big a world's world can open up when you hold the questions and keep asking further questions. Is that, is that, a, what did I get you there?
2: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that that a really good question should lead to two or three more questions. Each of which mm-hmm. should lead to two or three more questions. Mm-hmm. And each okay. of those takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into the subject material. Got it. Thank you. So that, um, what I understand as dialogue through my own experience, for instance, what I understand uh, David Bohm was trying to talk about in the years before, so is kind of open-ended Search without the demand for answers is mm-hmm. what leads people deeper and uh, uh, opens up the the possibility of something really creative appearing.
0: Yeah, there's a notion of questioning that I, I've come to of a question as like, like an antenna and. A particular question allows us to frame a receptivity to a quality of uh, experience and energy, but it's not an answer. The question, the question is simply a receiving device that allows us to tune to a particular, in a particular direction. But we don't get an answer. We just, we get, as you say, more questions or more impressions that are tuned to the nature of the question. Yeah,
2: that's that's great question as an antenna because the quality of the question tunes to different frequencies. But that this will be very confusing to people who have an experience because uh, they're going to say, well, if all you have is more and more questions, what's the point? But my point is that as you explore the questions, they resonate inside you in a way that begins to show you um, a useful response to your initial questions that then lead to other questions. So, for, for instance, um, uh, <clears throat> remember when I was first given the task uh, in, in one of the basic of, uh, techniques to get people into their bodies, for those of us who are not in their bodies, some people already are and they don't need this, they could. Going through some other doorway, but the, the task was to um, sit quietly and try and sense each of my limbs one at a time in a different ro- in a certain rotation, and then adding to that rotation. And I remember sitting there saying, "Sense my arm. What does that mean? What's the answer to that question? How do you sense your arm? You know Where's the book that tells me how to sense my arm? And this went on for maybe a week or more just total bafflement and then all of a sudden i realized oh there's my arm i can sense my arm is that what that's what that's about so i found it through the experience not through some conceptual answer
0: so so in a way it's the the living of the ideas of the work in a way, it, it's not exactly the, the, the formatory questions drop away when we're able to live the work. It's not, it's not that questioning doesn't continue to be in the way that we're describing a way of responding to the mystery. But the kind of formatory question that you're describing, of like, what's the answer? That, that kind of question drops away. Yeah, so look what happens. So all of a sudden, there's my arm. Look at that. I can sense
2: my arm. Well, how am I doing that? How is this happening? What does it mean? I am sensing my arm. Am I inside my arm? Am I outside my arm? Who am I? No. I so now I need to go look at neurology and what parts of the brain connect with the arm and, and how does this work? And So uh, we have electricity flowing through our neurons and, then the, and, the, and the chemicals and the molecules and and all the wiring and all this is, so now I'm learning about the body. But it still doesn't answer the question of how I know and how I'm sensing. For instance, how do I raise my arm? So I'd look at my arm sitting on my lap, and I say to it, rise. It's just sitting there. So I think, rise. It's not moving. And then I allow it to Rise. I have no idea how that happens. There's, this, this, there's a synapse between my intent and the manifestation. That's really wild. So what is in that space? So you can see how realizing I can sense my arm just led to a cascade of deeper and deeper, more complex and interesting questions that now can be asked and appreciated differently, not as theory, but as coming out of the direct experience. Son of a gun, I'm inside of a body. That's really true. How did this happen? What am I inside a body? How does it look? This body's got a life of its own. It does all this stuff without my having to tend to it. And sometimes I ask it to do something, and if it's capable, it will comply. I don't know how that happens, but there it is. This is a real mystery. Hmm
1: you're you're reminding me of the uh phenomenon of so-called phantom limbs the people who have had for whatever reason a uh you know amputation uh, uh, an injury perhaps or or um i don't know gangrene and have had a limb removed but they insist that they can feel um and sense um right. They can yeah. that limb, even though it no longer can be seen by anyone else.
2: Well, just so now, something new that I'd never thought about before came up just because you made that observation. Mm-hmm. In my in my psyche, I have uh, phantom parts of me, phantom parts of my personality <laughs> <laughs> that are no longer function really functional, operative, but I keep them alive, or phantom stories about things that happened a long time ago. That's Mm. not the world I live in, but I still feel them as if they were there.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, it's it's certainly uh, been the case that uh, uh, even if I grow beyond a particular neurotic uh, habit pattern that I had, that that habit pattern seems to still exist kind of like the creases in a piece of paper that was unfolded. But, they can be used, you know. They can become very sensitive instruments to, uh, as long as we are using them consciously to sort of give us, you know, some data about a, a particular uh, uh, situation. Yes, if I am uh, aware and conscious of that
2: pattern uh, for what it is—a pattern—and I have a reasonable sense of its history, how it got programmed into me. Uh, I don't have to get rid of it. Uh, as a matter of fact, every attempt to try and get rid of it is likely to f- fail. But I can develop a different relationship with it. Like, all right, I have this pain. It feels like I got an arm, but I know it's phantom limb phenomenon. It still sucks. It's there, but I I kind of know what's happening, and I don't have to become identified with it. I can bring that same attitude to... uh my inner conditioned attitudes and and uh, reactions, if I've been able to study them in the proper way sufficiently so that I can be relatively objective about them, even though I still feel them and have to suffer them. Um, but that change in in attitude brings a change in perspective. And so the situation is not the same as it was before. I'm not as helpless. Hmm.
0: So, so I want to... Um kind of step back up, uh, looking at the book again, you know, the, the two names on the cover of the book, uh, are, uh, uh, Gurdjieff and young besides your name. Yeah. Besides your name. Yeah. You guys are the three names on the book. Yeah, so, uh, wait, everything, wait, wait. Com- everything comes in three. Everything's in three. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh so
1: hopefully, hopefully you're the harmonizing.
0: <laughs> yes, you, you might be. The, I think you are the harmonizing. Factor. Uh, I think you touched on this a little earlier. Um, because, because, I when I I wrote the question down and I was thinking about this. Okay, Gurja figures more in the book in terms of the both the the background ideas and the and references, but Jung also comes in here. And obviously, you have made a reference to uh, you know depth uh, the therapy and the and the Jungian world. I want. I'm curious how you see them coming together. And maybe maybe this idea of archetype and allegory is is the entry point. But I, I'm curious how how you bridge that gap.
2: Well, I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. Jung, <clears throat> when, when I first encountered it. Jung saw into the invisible world behind human manifestation. This is much, much deeper than Freud's unconscious, which is more personalized. The, the noticing of archetypal patterns, the recognition that symbols were pointing were the language of a hidden psychic reality. Uh, that drives humanity um, was just profound for me. The importance of storytelling, of myth, that Gurdjieff also uh, extrapolates to a great degree. That just as a picture is worth a thousand words, a story uh, can convey feeling, can bring up uh, images and resonate with experiences in a way uh, far broader and deeper than um, theoretical language, just intellectual explorations. So when I met Gurdjieff almost synonymously with Jung, and began to study him, Gurdjieff's methods gave me a way of really... uh, seeing an even deeper application than Jung. I've never found anything that goes as deep as Gurdjieff. Uh, His model of the structure of the psyche is is, uh, phenomenal. And uh, through my experience over almost four decades, it's right on. It gives far more explanatory value than anything else I've found. Now, is it the only way? To approach this? Of course not. Is it the ultimate way? Probably not. But is by far and away the best way that I have found? So where... Um, my work with Jung was uh, very emotional. But kirchhoff brings a, a real three-centered approach. You know, he brings the body and the intellect, as well as the mind. So it just took it much deeper and has been able to provide uh, a deeper feeling into the question, what lies behind the archetypes? What lies behind this invisible pattern that Jung uh, realized controls humanity? So Gurdjieff goes far deeper than humanity. He goes to the heart of existence with humanity playing this central role in terms of um, bringing uh, sensitivity and uh, striving to understand uh, the, uh, the cosmos, the big cosmos and the little cosmos. Almost, uh, I, these days I often uh, come back to the um, wave particle question in physics it seems to me that the material universe is the particle and the consciousness that seeks to understand it is the wave. That's one way I look at it. So that's, I'll have to think about that a lot more, uh, but that's the best answer I can give you at the moment. I think Jung in, in himself would not have been a, sufficient for me. I would have had to, I, I'm sure, gone into Buddhism if I hadn't found uh, Gurdjieff. Hmm. Hmm. That, that,
0: that, that's interesting because there, there's a an area it would, that I noticed in some of the uh, pieces that you wrote that went beyond maybe the framework that... Uh, the Gurdjieff work typically is discussed within. And that's when you begin to look at the question of the nature of awareness. And in particular, you, you cited a number of experiences that you had. Um, I'm remembering, I think, one on uh, the the beach uh, when uh, uh, you and another couple uh, uh, went, you know, were sort of grieving because of uh, a third couple had lost a son in an accident, and you're on the beach, yes. and you yes. have this experience of suddenly seeing that everyone is on a screen. Yes, that that the life life the, the phenomenal world is a projection on a screen, and yes. that you were knowing yourself from a perspective that was uh, beyond the screen. Yes. That that to me has more of a, a flavor of an Advaita Vedanta uh, teaching. Uh, you know, uh, almost almost the, the language is almost directly out of like Ramana Maharshi or someone like that. And that kind of almost big picture that you know that phenomenology is just is this projection, and the true nature of our being is outside of that projection is something that doesn't come up in the same way in the Gurdjieff work. So the reason I, br- I bring that up is that I noticed in the book that there are elements where your questioning it takes you in other other areas as well, that you're not you're not just slavishly following one tradition, but you're really opening yourself to um, the questions that are asked in multiple traditions.
2: What, what Gurdjieff... Showed me, and
0: many people have had the same
2: impression with me, is that it helped me see the unifying, underlying thread between all the traditions. From my perspective, they are all talking about the same thing, but using different language, different metaphors, um, even many many of the techniques are very are very similar or identical, or I can see the common thread to them and as I sometimes read in other other traditions, uh, I understand them because of the the commonality, the same underlying thread that um, consciousness needs to wake up and in the body uh, be able to separate from the, the body, uh, separate from the personality and its reactions. And not that they don't continue to go on, but to be able to observe them from this place that uh, you referenced in this experience uh, that I call the place of inside-outside. Mm-hmm. So somehow, I was simultaneously inside the screen, but I was also outside the screen and my <laughs> My thought is that this is you know, if you go to go to the what's beyond the universe, where did it come from? Well, I think it came from this space it came from a place outside of where it is, but also simultaneously inside of what it is, and that we can touch that. And learn from that on occasion uh, inside ourselves. It can either happen spontaneously, on rare occasions, to some individuals, who then are puzzled as to what happened. And uh, like maybe with Krishnamurti, or Eckhart Tolle, I think has had that experience. But for for most of us, to whom this occurs, it, it happens once in a while. But it doesn't have to. In, in Search of the Miraculous, the Gurdjieff uh, was talking to Ospensky about this question. And he said, "Look, Ospensky, it's possible you walk around St. Petersburg from time to time, you're going to find some rubles in the street. But that's a hard way to make a living once you figure out how to make your own rubles. So I think all the traditions for me personally, Gurdjieff was the most precise, uh, provide a, a method of search, um, a, a, a method that will tri- literally transform the way our brains are wired so that we have access to different frequencies, as you're talking about with the question, nature of the question. So now I've forgotten the question. Well, that's, that's we? okay. Uh,
1: well, but, uh, I'll, I'll just comment that, uh, uh, as you were speaking about this, it, this experience, uh, I think you said inside, outside, um, um, I'm, uh, there's a, an, an obvious resonance to me with self-observation and, um, and self-remembering and Gurdjieff, I think, um, I mean, my 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 teacher used to say that it, it's a it's a more direct way than some other ways to uh, to play with this, and 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 that's the um and just and the word I just used to play with it um, is where some of you some of the people that you were mentioning earlier who end up who find themselves in despair that they'll never realize even though it's as close as their jugular, as you were, you were saying, um, uh, they, they don't, they don't have a sense of play with it. And, and, and there's definitely moments in your book where you're explicitly invoking a sense of play. Um, and also, um, I'm just remembering now the, uh, uh, the an early chapter where you where you talk about uh developing the capacity to play music and you realize that it's if you're thinking you can't do it but when you let go of thinking then the music emerges
2: right it just happens right uh you know, had re- reportedly a marvelous sense of humor and often a very ribald sense of humor. You know, uh, it's great at dirty jokes, I understand. Maybe it's the influence of Mr. Ospensky. <laughs> who, uh, seems to be quite heavy and ponderous and serious, and although they said he had a great sense of humor. But uh, when I've been in these groups with with people who, after 30, 40 years, seem to be in despair, I blame it on the leaders of of the group, that either they haven't had the experience, so they don't know how to get people there, Mm -hmm. or they uh, are locked into the methodology that um, one just has to wait and observe, and people will find it for themselves. Um, which isn't entirely not true, but a little help now and then would be useful. And it, it's just very painful for me uh, because it is so present for me. And in a way, uh, it turns out to be so simple. And yet it so, seems so complex in getting to the simplicity. That That's a very interesting conundrum I haven't quite figured out yet. Uh,
0: you know, that when you... I, I have had the sense that um some representations of uh the language of the work can give rise to a self-criticism a a a a stifling of these innocent and creative impulses uh and Maybe it's the lack of discrimination on the part of a group leader between a a formatory expression versus a uh, uh, essential expression of curiosity or openness that uh, gives rise to some of the problems that you're describing. Because it seems like people can be very deadened in their fear of like doing something wrong. And... You know, our own our own teacher used to use the term. You know, that it was important to goof gloriously in order to get anywhere. And so, mistakes—even if you got the consequences of the mistakes—the mistake, the mistakes were actually important, and the willingness to make a mistake was important. Uh, yeah, it's and so it's a very
2: complex question, but it's also very simple. I understand that in the Gurdjieff work, anyway. There's initially there's a tremendous amount of Discipline that needs to be learned because we come into it um, full of all sorts of conditioned reactions and can't tell, you know, formatory thoughts from other kinds of thoughts. And so there has to be a period of at least a few years of doing what you're told and following the program so that you can begin to discover what lies in back of that. But But after a while, I believe it's appropriate to uh, for whoever is leading this effort to um, try and show and encourage people how to begin to improvise based on their experiences. So once I understand, for instance, how to sense myself in my body, and I'm willing to practice that because as the years go by, that becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. Don't ever stop. But once I have the essence of that, I don't have to walk around, you know, um, not cracking a smile, making a joke. From my understanding, the work is to wake us up in life. Well, life has a huge range of stuff from joy to grief, from joking and being silly to being very serious. We need to find a way to be awake in all of that. Now, in order to learn my pattern of conditioned responses and learn how not to identify with them, I have to, at least initially, try and exert control over their manifestation. By holding them back, I become more aware of them and I can study them. But that's not the end goal. That's, that's a method to learn to understand them. And at some point, I need to be willing to risk allowing my personality to manifest in his natural habitat as long as he's not causing harm. I do want to keep an eye on that. Um, But I have to be willing to try and, without identification, watch his foolishness, his silliness, his uh, inappropriateness, all of the things that make him a human being, because that's the way I study all of these different layers in this vertical psychological dimension. So if I'm going to try and over control some of those because they're not appropriate, I can't learn about them. And by trying to control them, I'm increasing my identification with them. So it's, it's a very, it's, it takes great subtlety. But I, I also now have developed a lot of compassion for people who either take the responsibility of being in front of a, a group or find themselves there through attrition, because they were the oldest person, and <laughs> so they get to be the head. Bec- um, because if they have a, a real sense of responsibility, they're going to try and do their best. But we can only bring to any endeavor our current level of understanding. It's the fortunate person in that situation who understands what he doesn't understand, that there's much where he doesn't understand. We really get into trouble if when we think, well, I've got it, and this is the way it is, and I'm going to tell you. And that's that's when I think progress stops and people can can get hurt. Got it. You
0: know, this, in a way, uh, echoes a question I had that goes in a different direction in the book. There's, I think you, you touch on this in two places. One of them is in the uh, uh, the chapter entitled The Trail of Breadcrumbs. But it's the uh, story around... Um, the period of your life shortly after your uh, second wife, Susan, had died of cancer and you had some phenomenology that really could be understand understood as a, uh, a contact or a, a message or a sign that was given to you. But more importantly, your friend uh, um, and mystical positivist guest Oka DeBoer had uh, uh, actually an even stronger uh, resonance in which uh, it was very clear that Susan had given a message. And, what I, and I guess what I wanted to ask and talk about was this, this message that she gave was, you know, I want you to enjoy your life, what you have left of it. And I just thought that that was a you know for all the 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 study the work the seriousness the uh uh struggle that we face in coming to terms with the nature of our uh existence in these bodies, this message of enjoy your life you know enjoy it uh you know enjoy, appreciate what you have appreciate what you have left I thought was actually uh, moving moving in a in a it's sort of a, a different note to the seriousness of the struggle. And I just—I I guess I would just want to invite you to speak to that a moment. Well, I don't know if you're inviting me to tell the story. You, you, you can tell the story. I do not I don't want to—I don't want to, a spoiler <laughs> alert for anyone reading the book. But uh, well,
2: right after after Susan died, sometime after she died. I received a couple of telephone calls on my cell phone from her for a name and uh i <laughs> being a scientist i well the first thing was i i I got these phone calls when I was out to uh, breakfast with a friend, and i didn't understand where they were coming i thought how could this be and uh I thought they were coming from her cell phone, which I'd given to her daughter in Massachusetts. So I called her daughter and said, were you calling me from the, no? And in fact, I just, I deactivated the phone. I didn't know how this could happen. And then through, I I won't go into details, but subsequently realized that the phone call came from my house when I was at breakfast and there was no one there. It turned out the house was locked. And when I came home after that experience at breakfast, I was looking at her picture on the wall, and the words came into my mind, enjoy the life remaining to you and don't be afraid. Sometime afterwards, leading up to a memorial service that I planned for her, I got this email from Oka, uh, in which he told me that shortly after he, she died. He was uh, out in the woods walking his dog, and he heard her voice. And he said, "Susan, is that you?" And she's the voice said, "Yes." And then some companions came into the field, and the phenomena stopped. And, and that night, he woke up and he said, "He saw her there in the room, a great warmth and affection." And she said to him, "Enjoy the life remaining to you, and don't be afraid." Now, we hadn't talked to each other before that. We had the same experience. Uh, There are some other parts of this story, too, but um, a year later, I was thumbing through the photos on my um, cell phone, and there were three consecutive screenshots of missed calls from her six months after her death. Hmm. And I just discovered uh, a couple of weeks ago when doing some final editing that um, I wrote all this up as a letter to all of our companions because I, I felt under an obligation. I, I couldn't understand. The only logical explanation is the illogical explanation. <laughs> uh, any logical explanation was not logical. And, uh, but I felt I had an obligation to share this message with people who'd known Susan and anyone else who was interested. So I sat down and, and, and wrote it as a letter to my, my colleagues and the work. And um, time went by, so I'm doing the final editing of the book, and I see that I wrote that letter to everybody the very day those new phone messages came in. It was at the six-month mark after her death that I wrote that, and I didn't see the connection until just last week. So what are you going to do with that? I don't know, but the message is, and it seems reasonable since we what else can we do? Enjoy the life remaining to you and don't be afraid. If you're afraid, it's going to spoil your life. And what are you alive for if not to enjoy it? But we can be awake while we enjoy it. We can observe ourselves enjoying it. And what you said earlier, Robert, about self-remembering and self-observation. I've I read that Gurdjieff said that. Real self observation can only occur in a state of self remembering. And for me, and I'm, I'm doing it, uh, the caveat is this is just for me. I don't want any, to tell anyone else what this means. But the awareness of being aware is a step much deeper than self observation. Self observation in that state goes much deeper than just. Ordinary self-consciousness, where one part of me observes another part and has an opinion. Mm-hmm. I think that that is the leading edge of that phenomenon, but it gets captured by personality. And we don't see its significance. That There's a separation. One thing is looking at another thing and having a relationship with it. But if I see that that's happening, now we've got three. One thing is observing that two other things are in conversation. Yeah. That makes it even more interesting. Now, if that third thing can look at it, um, just look at it uh, without letting the other two parts get into judgment and criticism and just seeing what's happening. Well, look at that. This part is saying this about that part and has that attitude. Hmm. Um, Who are these guys? You know, how do how they come about? What is their history? And then I can begin to understand how my psyche has been programmed by viewing it from outside the program, which brings us back to the place of outside-inside.
0: Okay.
2: And then I can see my personality as a series of phenomena on, on a screen, in a way. But uh, that part is only looking out through the body. It's not looking backwards at what is observing it, and the fact that we can observe in that way is a profound mystery that cannot be explored with telescopes and microscopes. It can only be explored through attention, but it's attention that has to be trained um, to to be more objective, which is really difficult because we're inside our subjectivity.
0: Yeah, that that. that rings, you know, true for us. I mean, our, our teacher used to emphasize when he would describe self-observation that the observer was silent. He that if it's talking, it's not the observer. It's something to observe. Right. And yes. That-, that, that was always a very powerful corrective to, I guess, what we, we, in our own variation of our language, we would call self-analysis, which is one part offering an opinion on another part.
2: Right. Let me say one more thing about fun. Uh, Shimon Malin uh, was a wonderful Zen teacher, student of William Siegel, also professor of physics at Colgate, uh, wrote two really interesting books, one called Nature Loves to Hide, and the other was The Eye That Sees Itself. Mm -hmm. But Shimon had this saying, he'd say, it's serious, it's not serious, it's just serious he said zest with ease i like oh, that nice it's sweet yeah he a very sweet man Hmm.
1: so you said he was a just just uh, parenthetically here you you mentioned that he was a, a zen zen teacher i believe as opposed to uh, someone formally in the work as a uh, no, he going. was in the work.
2: He was probably okay. in the work. Yes, okay. but he, but he but as a student of William Siegel, he, he was also quite adept at. He was a very Zenish person? Got to put it. it that way. Mm. Our, te- our teacher gave a talk
1: one time describing uh, uh, what he what he was teaching as cowboy Zen.
0: <laughs> yeah, he said that uh, enlightenment had to be hog tied. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Okay, now that opens up a question for me. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to think about that and get back to you.
0: <laughs> well, I think, I think if I were to uh, put it in the language of our uh, conversation, I would understand that as uh, uh, along the lines of the story you told about um, uh, Ospinsky looking for rubles in the, the streets mm-hmm. of St. Petersburg, that yeah, you know, whereas with Zen, there, there's sort of an implication, although this isn't really true of Zen, that uh, you you do know, all this sitting and waiting for enlightenment to find you. Whereas uh, in the uh, the fourth way, you know, there's still this notion of quote unquote enlightenment, but there's a methodology for actually going out and, and uh, uh, hogtieing it, as it were. Well, yes, I want to stress
2: for me the, the Gurdjieff work as it's brought in the groups and talked about in the books, um, is a training method. Training for what? To bring us to this point of being able to be aware of being aware. And then, then the work is in you, and then you become the work, and the work is your teacher. Now, do you still practice the things that you were given? Um, some of them. Maybe they're not all necessary anymore. Well maybe you do them intermittently, because you you 're already there, and you know how to get there, so for me, all of these traditions are uh, ways to show us how to open the door, and when the door opens, walk through, and then you 're on your own, well, sort of i mean. <laughs> uh you're no no meet, no you,
1: come on you 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 stress throughout the book that that you're sharing consciousness.
2: Yeah, no, <laughs> no 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 um no, let me back it. in 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 the sense in the sense that uh you've arrived at the at the doorway to the kingdom that, you know, that's, you're, that's, that's you're on the other side of the garden fence and now you'll meet all sorts of things there uh and the experience now will become your your teacher, not the books. Not the methods; they were designed to get you there. And now, relax. You know, try and to have, sense and have yourself fun. in the body and have <laughs> fun. It is the the work is so much fun. There's nothing more fun in, in anywhere than this than this wonderful exploration, uh, a practical way to explore th- this mystery. Well, there's a, a, a famous
1: book. Or at least my my teacher really he he knew uh, uh, Robert DeRopp and he was a fan of the book The Master Game, which was um, which to me had the seriousness and at least some measure of the levity that is necessary that you that you've been discussing. But I don't, although that particular book didn't didn't was a little top heavy on the seriousness part. It seems to me, um, nevertheless, the, the title game implies that it is not a, uh, uh, an ultimate, an absolute. And, and that's one of the things that I take from what you were just saying, um, uh, that having gone through the threshold, stepped through the threshold, then you're out in the world and the world, um, speaks to you not unlike your deceased wife apparently speaking to you which it was a sweet
2: story very sweet story well it's an absolutely true
0: story yeah i believe it well i mean it 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 does it oh. what resonated for me for that and i won't go into the the details on our side but we've had Numbers of experiences, uh, um, some together, some independently of phenomenology, that is in the category that you described of, of like something happening that just my mind, as a being trained as a scientist myself, um, would go through meticulously every causal chain to see can I explain this? Yeah, and I know I, I could feel it. I could, I, you know, I was like one with you as you as you wrote this, like. You know, it's not like I have to have this be an explanation. I just want to make sure I'm not fooling myself <laughs> and and go through every, every possible sequence and realize there's no way that what just happened <coughs> could have happened uh, in any reasonable explanation of coincidence or, uh, you know, anything like that, that this was the universe, you know, sort of turning down the reality switch a little bit for something to come through to remind me that it's not exactly what it seems or, or maybe turning up the reality switch yeah well yes yeah, turning you know, <laughs> t- 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 <laughs> yes turning down the ob- objectivity switch maybe yeah when turned down my reality and turned up something
2: else but you, you're right another feature of, of my in my personality in my essence I suppose I don't know I suppose it's my essence is um, I don't want to be gullible. Mm. I don't want to be suggestible. So I try and not be that way and look for every other, you know, plausible explanation. Uh, Because as Carl Sagan said, you know, extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. And in this particular case, um, I exhausted every plausible explanation and I'm simply left with the story as I experienced and people can make of it what they, what they choose.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it it's, a, this is an interesting question uh, uh, because it's a challenge to hold the possibility of reality being way, way, way more porous than our, than the materialistic paradigm uh, dares to suggest. And yet not be gullible because an occupational hazard for people who look to, you know, sort of the fringe sciences or the friend, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, metaphysical explanations and things like that. The occupational hazard is that people are very willing to accept truth claims without any kind of testing or validation or <clears throat> self inquiry, but just simply accept it. And it's, I find that problematic because that's to me, that's as suggestible as anything, you know, it's like, it's a function of suggestibility that uh, we take an idea as truth. I like your approach because you're not really trying to assert uh, an explanation to the, the story you just told. You're saying this, this is what I experienced. You can decide what that means. I will experience it in a certain way, and that's part of who I am. Uh, you know, you you have to deal with your own signs and messages and uh, draw your own conclusions. Yes, the, the difficulty of, or the challenge
2: uh, that Gurdjieff puts down before us, that was one of several things that really attracted me, was uh, in essence what he said, Don't believe anything anybody says, even me, until you can confirm it to your own satisfaction for yourself. It is of no practical use to you and may, in fact, even hurt you. So how do I confirm for myself? And for me, uh, the methods of the traditions and Jung and Gurdjieff, particularly Gurdjieff, uh, gave me um, a methodology for testing for myself. Now, there's, there's still ideas or concepts in the Gurdjieff work that I haven't been able to confirm. But long ago, uh, when I was first reading In Search of the Miraculous, it was just astounding. I was, who could think of such amazing ideas? And they, they answered questions that I'd never seen answers to. They answered questions that I hadn't even asked yet. I was just blown away. By this book. And then I came to a particular section on the moon. And my mind rebelled. The voice inside of me jumped up and down and started screaming, This is worse than pseudoscience. This is pagans, but this nonsense and and I was about to close the book and walk away. But another voice said, Whoa, there, big fella. Hold on a minute. Has this been amazing up till now? Yes. Does it seem accurate up to now? Yes. Well, maybe you just don't understand what he means here. Why don't you just put it up on a shelf and keep reading? And fortunately, I did. As the years went by, that shelf was just really got crammed with a lot of stuff. But I kept reading and kept studying and kept working. And every once in a while, I'd have an experience, and one of those ideas would jump off the shelf into my lap, and I could say, "Oh." This experience I'm having right now, this is what that idea is about. Now I understand. So what I understand, I understand now. Am I right about all that? Are those the ultimate uh, answers? I don't know, but I, but my understanding is much more useful, practical, and satisfied now. And what I haven't personally experienced can be very interesting. It can even be useful in some ways, but I'm not going to say I know it for a fact just because somebody told me or I read it somewhere. It's a possibility, but I haven't confirmed it. So, uh, you know, I can accept it with a grain of salt or um, suspend disbelief, but I need to know I'm doing that and not swallowing it without
0: being able to confirm it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think science at its best, when it's being honest and acting with integrity says that any claim it makes is the best story we have to fit the facts and the experience the experiments as we know it. And where we run into trouble with science as it, when science then un- unconsciously veers into religion is when suddenly these uh, stories become treated as facts and the way things are. And people say, this is the world and stop asking questions about that may uh, call into question some of those stories. Yeah. Uh, Let's work with that
2: language for a moment because there's no such entity as science. Science is a particular methodology for approaching questions. So the problem is with science, it's with people claim to be scientists. Yeah. Because all scientists are individual people. They all have conditioned personalities and issues programs and according to Gurdjieff virtually all of them are living in the second state of consciousness Maybe brilliant minds uh, but that doesn't mean they have any emotional intelligence that doesn't mean they're connected to their bodies and then and that doesn't mean they understand the deep implications of their discoveries like Gurdjieff supposedly I wasn't there it would have been great to hear this, but supposedly said to Ospensky early on, Spensky, if you understood what you yourself had written in your books, I would be your student. <laughs> so one can, can um, have ideas that really go very deep to the core of the, how the mechanics of existence work without actually having an understanding of what it means and implies, much less a direct experience of what you saw as thought form. So one of the
1: questions that you ask in the book, and in fact, I'm reminded of it because I happen to be looking at the back cover of the book is, is there a purpose to my existence? And you, I, I think you, you raise the question in many, many chapters, um, within the book. Yes. And, um, and I, uh, so one of the things, one of the features of the book is precisely that you raise the question in different contexts, approach it in different ways. And I think one of the, one of the things that, um, uh, is important is that people realize precisely that the that this question needs to be raised in different contexts and not just one single place. It's kind of it's sort of as if, um, uh, Spensky created one context to ask that question in a in a given book. But you need to, you need to reference many volumes, metaphorically speaking, here um, to do that. And I'm wondering if 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 you you said the book wrote itself, so you probably didn't have this idea in mind. But I'm wondering if, on reflection, um, that makes it makes sense to you that that this would arise in so many different ways from so many different angles.
2: Well, yes, as I said early on in our conversation, he asked me why I wrote it. Trying to pull together all of these fragments of my experiences and being able to look at them as a whole began to uh, show me a pattern. And it was through that pattern that uh, I was able to more deeply approach this question of the purpose of my life. I mean, if we have a purpose, and if we're lucky, how we manifest, where we manifest, who we manifest with, will be reflections of my search for that purpose. Many people are perhaps not that fortunate, born into circumstances that simply are so constraining that uh, you're focused simply on survival. Great tragedy. But for those of us who are not that unfortunate or about some individuals, rare individuals in those circumstances, fight their way through that, Um, looking at the pattern gives clues. And that was one of the reasons I allow myself to um, really a lot of this is free association. I would start with the topic and then I just see what would come up. And I I try to write about it in a way that, gave the sense that in that very moment, I was having another idea and another impression. Because I literally say, oh, I'm just remembering this. And that's exactly what happened. Just in that moment, writing it, I remembered something. Did I know whether whether it belonged? No. But I just permitted it. So it's like playing music. So if it came up, I wrote it. So I'm just having this memory. I don't know where it's going to lead yet. Maybe at the end of the essay, we'll find out. And, and I did, over and over and over again. Uh, so this is, this is the method that worked for me in that sense. Thank you. Now, if, <laughs> remember, uh, in grade school, we had to learn to diagram sentences, which always seemed to waste of me of to time. I could speak perfectly English. Why did I need to diagram them? But that's another conversation. But we can diagram our lives. If we will, uh, say, start with, uh, just go to your formatory memory and outline a timeline and events that seem significant. And then allow allow your mind to come up with associations, whether they make sense or not. Oh, this event when I was three, this is remind me of this thing that happened when I was 42. Do I know what? No, not yet. But I'm going to write it down. Oh, and that reminds me of this and this and this. And then I step back and... If there's an associational link, there's a pattern. What is that pattern showing me about myself? So in that way, I think one if one is so cloud can begin to map their life.
1: So there, <clears throat> um, so the implication here is that everything is connected in a life in, a, in um, some things resonate more uh, broadly or widely. And, and so you're looking for resonances, really.
2: That's a good word, resonance. Yeah. I mean, what is an association if not a resonance? Now, why is this particular association coming up? After I've just thought about that. Well, maybe there's a connection. I would say there is a connection, but maybe there's a connection. So let me write them down. If I don't see the connection right away. Fine. I'll, I'll just let that sit. And maybe another association will come up and another, and then maybe I can begin to see something. For instance, in, um, in one of the essays, I think um, having to do with uh, emotions, um, I was recounting this experience I had as a school psychologist when the young girl was brought in to see me. I don't even remember what, to, they were having some difficulty with her and she came into the room and sat down and um, I was preparing to speak and I, and I felt this wall of hatred hit me in the chest. It was a solid thump. And I looked up and I knew it was coming from her, this radiating hatred. And I knew in that moment they had not told her who I was, what we we're doing. They had Tricked her, she was resentful. You know, I didn't, I couldn't do anything. And then, as I was relating this experience to my wife, I remembered another event long, long, long ago when I was at a basketball game uh, in in high school, and I was with my girlfriend and my best friend and his girlfriend enjoying the game. And all of a sudden, I felt gutted, ice cold, right in my center, like there was a hole darkest despair, and I've had depression in my life, but there's nothing like this, you know, and I saw in that moment why someone would kill themselves, and I was totally puzzled, where is this coming from? And then it left. And that association came back to me when I was talking about this experience with the girl, and I thought, <clears> huh, <throat> I wonder if someone with those suicidal feelings was near me in the crowd. Now, do I know that's what happened? Of course not. Can I prove it? Of course not. But I've never had those thoughts before or connected those two events before. So there's a, and I saw a pattern about how this we can sometimes feel other people's feelings. Now, and it's not just mental. Sometimes it's really physical. Hmm. So I didn't know they were connected across time, but they were. So if you step In back of the curtain, the flow of time being the curtain, um, things are, there's no time. Things from long ago are connected with things today, which are now already connected with things that are going to happen in the future. They haven't happened yet on the front of the curtain, but behind the curtain, they're all connected.
0: There may be and connections, maybe connections and uh, dimensions that <clears throat> we barely even suspect that are, are impinging as well. Um, I think barely is an overstatement. <coughs> so, yeah. uh, I wanted to return to the question that you raised at the very beginning of our conversation, which was the uh, future of the work. Um, and we can talk about the future, of the fourth way work, but the future of spiritual work in general. And I, I, I'm interested because you know you're writing your book is you're you know you're about to turn 79, so this book is a a, a lifetime glimpse of a, a spiritual work in a particular time and place, and the world we live in today is very different from the uh, uh, world that you were born into. And obviously things always are changing, but what do you see now, you know, you know, in terms of your understanding of the work, your experience and what you see of younger people today, uh, what do you see as the future of the work? What, what might be necessary? What, uh, what has to change? I'm just interested in your insight in this. Well, I I prefer,
2: let's approach the work as meaning the perennial wi- wisdom. Yeah, that's fine. This, the study of the reality behind reality of which Gurdjieff's methodology is one of many, although clearly my favorite. Um, I spent a lot of time on YouTube. YouTube University, I call it. <laughs> and um, I'm really very interested in the burgeoning number and quality of explorations about this material that I see there. Some of them beautifully done. Um, A few of them flaky, but many of them, but, but very solid people tried to share, tried to share, tried to share. I can't address what, And so who we're talking about is the younger generation, teenagers, 20s, 30s. I don't know. But the, the question of who am I? What's the point of all this? Do I have a purpose? I think is perennial, is always there. Where do I fit in? Not only in my peer group, but where do I fit into the ecology? Where do I fit into the universe? I look at the ecology uh, movement. Is about what is my responsibility to the whole planet? So I I think those questions are still there and people are looking for answers. I'd say that the the safest, most universal thing uh, I would recommend is that people who have this question find a real meditation tradition and learn to meditate and see what happens from there. Um, Particularly if the meditation tradition is uh, relatively light, on um, theology or or what it all means. Just learn to be quiet. Learn to sense yourself as an awareness in your body. Now, the psychological piece is is much more difficult. There's this problem of our conditioned personality and our neuroses and our fears and our egoism and our pride. All these manifestations associated with the concept that uh, um, I'm somehow supposed to become very important in the world of men and people, rather than I'm supposed to uh, learn what I, what I actually am and what, what, what my responsibility is to myself, the planet, you know, other people, and maybe even what created all of this. So I think that search is still there. Uh, I I think we we see it in the wide and often tragic and inappropriate use of mind-altering drugs. People want to escape their ordinary psychology. They know there's something else there. So I don't think the questions will ever go away. What will be uh, the, the new form of exploration besides drugs? And I don't know about the metaverse. I think we already... Naturally, live in the metaverse, and we don't know it. Then we're going to make it more artificial. Um, so I, I can't I can't answer that question. All I can do is share my experiences. Hopefully, they'll resonate with some people long after I'm dead, and uh, might be of some use uh, and take their place in in the collection of approaches that might appeal to generations to come. I don't know how to. I think that question is bigger than any of us. There's no one person who's got the answer to what the new form would be. If it's going to be useful, it will organically grow out of our
0: circumstances. Hmm. Well, I I certainly reflect on the challenges of our ability to focus attention because of the ways in which uh, our lives are, Mediated now by uh, media that basically uh, create fast switches and fast uh you know uh, short attention time and 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 small tidbits and things like that and when you say "Learn to meditate and be in the body that that really is inviting us to um, have a long thought. Or a long, a long experience. You know, that's something that is. Um, there aren't as many examples of now, and that, and that seems like it's a barrier that we have to uh, work to overcome. Well, yeah, I, there've always been
2: barriers, but they're much more now today than they used to be. And uh, it is, it is a real challenge. I, I guess I've been thinking of what is the. Essence of this book, because I, I, I think it's going to be released on Amazon within the next one, two, three weeks. And um, so when when I'm asked by people who are not in a tradition, and I, that's going to happen, well, what is this about? I've been trying to think about what is the essence of what I'm trying to convey here. And this this will get modified, but at the moment, it seems to me, I'm trying to say, from my perspective, that science and spirituality are not competitors, they are complementary. That the solution to human problems does not lie in outer organizations, laws, and structures. It lies inside the consciousness of each person. The quality of the being and and the stability and wisdom of the being is what will manifest through the the office of president or prime minister or director or general. And all the manifestations of human beings come from the internal world of the participants. So the central mystery of existence is consciousness. And that consciousness, I think, is the missing link between the macro and microscopic worlds and that um, the instrument of inner exploration is attention. And that's where your, your observation, uh, Stuart, is, is so on the money and so profoundly disturbing. Because so much of the mechanical external world is now designed to steal our attention, to capture our eyeballs, to drain us, of our attention and make us into slaves of advertisers and politicians and group think. It's always been a problem, but it's much more of a problem now because the tools for psychological, emotional manipulation are far more powerful, penetrating and ubiquitous. So it's a terrible challenge, but I don't know what can be done other than each individual who has some recognition of this learn a way to extract themselves from the matrix. And it is the matrix. We are, we are prisoners and we are constantly manipulated. Um, and that's the truth.
0: Well, it seems that in every generation, there's some number of people who, for whatever reasons, um, question the matrix, whatever that matrix happens to be in their generation. Mm -hmm. And that matrix seems to exist in various forms throughout our history. And those people ask the questions that you were asking, uh, and are willing to ask questions too. Because the, what's being presented isn't uh, satisfying. and, Maybe, maybe the message is you know, or maybe the audience again for your book and, and this uh, discussion is directed to the people who are asking questions
2: uh, yes that's my audience no one who doesn't have those kinds of questions is going to buy this book much less get past the first few pages that can happen I think that's right so that's who it's written for. It's written for the audience that wants
1: it, and 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 can benefit from it. Absolutely. So uh, you know, there there are wonderful books out there that um, other people tell me resonate strongly for them, and I've picked them up, and I have just nothing, or, or even or even repulsion, and and vice versa. So, um, so this book will find its intended audience. I have, I
2: trust. Yes. Well, it probably will be a small audience, but that's that's not up to me. It, you know, this is what I have to say. This is how I have to say it. And whoever has ears for it will will hear it. I can't do anything else.
0: Well, there's, <clears throat> there's the um, perennial story of Mullah Nasrullah Dine. Um, who is seen one day at the side of a lake throwing uh, yogurt into the lake. And some passerbys come up to him and say, Mullah, what are you doing? You're wasting perfectly good food. Why are you throwing this uh, yogurt into the lake? And he turns and looks at them with a gleam in his eyes and says, yes, but what if it takes? (laughs) And what if? What if? Well...
2: uh Speaking of this great difficulty we we face these days with um, the matrix, you know, whatever cultural belief system we are at the moment, uh, I want to recommend to you guys a wonderful book that I'm I'm reading now called *Sapiens: A Brief Hell History yeah. of Humankind*. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, we've read it. I've,
1: re- I've read it.
2: I've read the successor to it, Dynamite. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a good book. So, it, it uh, in some ways it resonates a lot with. I think how I've tried to write this, this book, it's got a, uh, some ways a very similar theme. Um,
0: yeah, he, he, but, he, he takes a, a long view of humankind.
2: Yes. But uh, what, uh, one thing that, uh, struck me the other day when reading it was this image of the, uh, the, the cultural story and that where animals, um, you know, they'll cooperate with their pack, but different packs are not going to cooperate with each other. But human beings are different because we can get millions and millions and millions of minds tuned, resonating to the same kind of concept of nationalism, or my group, or the story of our people, or my victimhood, or what. And by by implanting into the minds of a population a story that resonates with them, you can entrain all those millions of brains to march in a particular direction, change the story and the whole flock moves in another direction. It's really terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) And that's actually the way it is. Yes. Yep. And in, in any conversation that on a, on a small scale, that's, what we're doing, we're sharing our inner world with someone else. It goes into that person's world. And God knows if they, well, if we're lucky, if they didn't hear it. But if they do hear it, it who knows where it's going to set up shop and how it's going to resonate in them. For, off and up for years, I used to be way out in public, do a lot of training in the state of Maine and met many, many people. And I'd have folks come up to me occasionally and say, Dr. Aronson, I remember what you told me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, who are you? What did I tell you? What state was (laughs) that when I told you? How did you interpret it? Fortunately, uh, they're only telling me because they were grateful for whatever it was, which often I didn't remember. But uh, when you open your mouth, you have a huge responsibility. Because what you you give another person to bring into their feelings and, and their minds, you don't know. What's going to get set off in there?
1: Yeah. Well, this book is an example of that. And, uh, and we want to thank you for uh, engaging us uh, with us in conversation about it. It's been uh, a very uh, fun experience for me. And um, um, the book is The Search for Meaning and the Mystery of Consciousness, A Psychologist's Journey Through Gurdjieff and Jung. Stephen Aronson, thank you so much for joining us today thank on you. Mystical Positivist. Well, thank you.
2: Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. And I kept waiting for the hour break, and I see we've been doing this for two hours. So <laughs> exactly. what does that say about the relativity of time? Indeed. <laughs> 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 All right.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest, Stephen Aronson, about his new book, The Search for Meaning in the Mystery of Consciousness, A Psychologist's Journey Through Gurdjieff and Young, published by Karnak Press in 2022. This book explores the existential questions of reality, one's purpose for existing, attention, consciousness, and the nature of the universe, all from a scientific and psychological perspective grounded in over 40 years of practice in the Gurdjieff work. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.